That's the 10 word answer my staff's been looking for for two weeks. There it is. 10 word answers can kill you in political campaigns. They're the tip of the sword. Here's my question. What are the next 10 words of your answer? Your taxes are too high, so are mine. Give me the next 10 words. How are we going to do it? Give me 10 after that. I'll drop out of the race right now. Every once in a while, every once in a while, there's a day with an absolute right and an absolute wrong. But those days almost always include body counts. Other than that, there aren't very many unnuanced moments in leading a country that's way too big for 10 words. I'm the president of the United States, not the president of the people who agree with me. And by the way, if the left has a problem with that, they should vote for somebody else. Christopher Maverick, and I am here once again with Palindrome Hannah Rogers. Hi, Hannah. Hey. Hannah has made me wake up at the ungodly hour of 9 a.m. on I a Saturday. Not, I did not make <laughs> you wake up at 9 a.m. And once again, perfectly reasonable, and no. I'm enjoying my tea. These are farmer hours that, so if I sound grumpy today, that's why. <laughs> um, okay. As someone who has like families who do farming, they get up way earlier than 9 a.m. There's no such thing as earlier than 9 a.m. You made that up. There's no time that exists before 9 a.m. It's ridiculous. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't think physics even work like that. So <laughs> There's a reason you're but, in English. That's right. That's right. Life begins at noon. So I'm here. I'm going to pretend to be awake. And actually, didn't we used to have two other co-hosts? I don't know. <laughs> They're not waking up this early. Um. I think I scared them away with the topic, not the hour. (laughs) Oh, well, what's the topic? The topic today is optimistic political TV shows in the age of Trump. Optimistic ones. Yes. Aspirational. Why do we turn to things like the West Wing or Parks and Recreation when we have Trump in the White House? (laughs) We have fiction that is more realistic than life. Well, I don't I don't know if we could say it's more realistic, but I think it's what people aspire to or want their politicians to aspire to. Mm-hmm. They, they wish they wish Trump behaved like Jed Bartlett from the West <laughs> Wing. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. We'll try to resolve it. So, <laughs> we're not going to resolve. <laughs> Spoiler alert: We're not going to resolve anything. But um, anyway, we're down two co-hosts, so we need guests as always. And you brought one. I, um, I, somehow, through the power of nepotism, you signed. <laughs> okay, don't even get me started with you and nepotism <laughs> on the show. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, I would like to introduce for the first time on the show my boyfriend Josh Stroud. Good morning. Hey, Josh. I'm, I'm amazed that you've never actually called me on the fact that like when I can't find a guest, I just make stuff come in here. <laughs> no one ever says that. That, that, that like previous comment before, that was my bit. <laughs> Josh, what do you do? So I'm a third year law student at UNC Chapel Hill. Hmm. So you'll say lots of smart stuff about Maybe, maybe. Uh, He can ruin a TV show where he'll tell you, actually, the law says this. Perfect. I I can attest that the West Wing is wildly popular among law students. 
think you'll be perfect for this show. Ruining TV shows. That's what we do here. Sounds great. And returning to the show, I have asked Danny Anderson of the Sectarian Review to come back. Hey, Danny. How's it going, uh, Matt? Thanks for having me back. Danny, what's your expertise here? Just to remind people. Um, I, I'm your friend and uh, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> most of it. Um, no, I did watch most, I think, of uh, Parks and Rec uh, over the years piecemeal, not like necessarily in order when it was on. And I think the only part of West Wing that I've actually seen was the season where Jimmy Smith's was running for president. That's the only it was sort of, you know. After the heyday of it, I suppose. Um, but, no, uh, let me let me get this out there. That is the best season of the show, and the West Wing was better after Aaron Sorkin left. Oh yeah, I enjoyed that season. Everyone talks about it like it was garbage, but I actually enjoyed it. But I had not seen the, the previous, so I'm glad to hear that my my sense about it. <laughs> yeah, good. and I like it. I like it too. So yeah, but yeah, so my uh, and so my I guess uh, I guess perspective on this is less celebratory. Like I. Um, I kind of align myself more with the kind of, you know, radical left rather than the liberal left. Um, there's a, most of my opinions probably overlap with liberals, but I think there's a set of uh, like values that are slightly different. And so I'm more cynical about these shows than I think probably <laughs> everyone else will be. So, oh, um, no, no, no. I think we're going to get along okay. just great. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> and just, you know, to clarify what, what I meant when I said, you know, Danny's expertise, Danny actually does also do this for a living. The same thing that we do. <laughs> <laughs> you are a, Oh, yeah. You are an English professor. Yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, that. Yeah. I have, you know, you know, with a, your own show. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm an English professor at Mount Aloysius College in uh, Crescent, Pennsylvania. And uh, and I, I do a show, Sectarian Review podcast that Mav's been on many times. And and uh, yeah. And so we do pop culture, politics, religion, high culture, whatever. So, yeah. But, you know. As we just pointed out, a lot of this show, I just booked through nepotism. So Danny's right. He's a friend of mine. That's how you got the show today. <laughs> friend of mine who's awake at the ungodly hour of 9 a.m. <laughs> but Hannah, this one was more yours. So why did you pick this one? Because you're you're talking about, you know, the age of Trump, for instance. And OK, so I don't know if you guys have been reading the news, but it's not great. Um, <laughs> at, at this moment, Paul Manafort got like four-ish years in jail. And the judge apparently has some connections to him. And he, like, Paul Manafort has been claimed to have, like, by the judge was said, like, oh, he had an otherwise blameless life, which really means he didn't get caught until now. And meanwhile, like, you know, people are serving five years for accidentally voting illegally or eight years for marijuana charges. And Trump is just doing, you know, one ridiculous, racist, sexist, garbage thing after another honestly it feels like a saturday night live skit that's not funny a lot of the time which is why saturday night live isn't really funny because they're just repeating what <laughs> happened in the news that week so i've noticed a trend in people not just me but just random people on my facebook timeline or twitter have said oh i i wish that you know leslie nope were running for president or like i i'm turning on the west wing because i just can't deal with things now and I get the impulse to like use literature or television or what have you to escape the real world because you do <laughs> <laughs> for obvious reasons, I suppose. But you know, I after watching the West Wing um, more critically, or even like Parks and Rec, which is a show I really love, I realized 
you know, maybe these shows aren't as aspirational as we'd hope them to be. And I think that we could be more critical of these shows on this show because it's what we do. Mm-hmm. Also, Aaron Sorkin uh, gotten the news very recently for basically he's he's basically angry that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and other members of like the new left are promoting policies that aren't neoliberal. Fair enough, Josh. Your opinions. Make sure everybody gets on the board here. Uh, for me, it's just a form of escapism because law school is is hell. So, <laughs> <laughs> please tell us how you really feel. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I really enjoy these types of shows. Just um, as uh, someone who aspires to public service, like I, I agree with Hannah that these are very aspirational shows. Um, it's nice to have something fun to look to, to watch, considering the tone of the news these last few years. And you like Madam Secretary? It, I watch Madam Secretary mm. occasionally. Uh, West Wing, Parks and Rec, uh, pretty they're staples around here. It's got to point out, Madam Secretary is delightful. It, it did not come up, I don't think, in the actual blog post. It did? I, for did it? I a hot second. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I, yeah, I mentioned that I'm, I am a fan, and you might have mentioned, I think you might have mentioned it in passing. I love that show. It's so delightful. <laughs> it should, she's just, just uplifting. She would make a good real-life president, other than the fact that, you know, she's not. <laughs> All right, sorry, continue. <laughs> oh, that, was, that was mostly it. Just to toss mine in, I am interesting. Like Danny, I am not a huge fan of West Wing, but I've not even seen a full season. I've seen a random episode here and there, which I enjoyed. I do enjoy the writing of Aaron Sorkin, but I just the, that show never sung to me in particular. I am a somewhat fan of Parks and Rec. Again, not not watched every episode. On the other hand, the ones that I that I mentioned that I like, I loved House of Cards. I have not gotten to the final season yet, and I'm sort of sad because everybody says it wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. And I was a huge fan of The Newsroom, which I've watched all the way through, I think, four or five times. And it, um, and I think that's a that's a, that one's a little different in a way that maybe we'll talk about a little later. So but. I guess we'll start with the escapism thing. I don't know how the escapism works. Is it really escapism? Because some of them, like obviously Parks and Rec is just uplifting. Leslie Nope is funny. She's, I mean, she's supposed to be ridiculous, but like as the series goes on, her, she's almost incompetent at the beginning. And then, it, and then after that, she's just not really incompetent. It's just, she's so bubbly and silly but she's good natured and she after the first few episodes she's clearly good at what she does don't you think yeah they they, they changed the tone of the show uh because originally it was supposed to be an office spinoff um yeah and it was exactly and, the office but yeah and then <laughs> you know they they basically cast her like when they changed the premise they cast amy poehler as leslie <laughs> nope uh and they kind of made leslie another michael scott character and then they realized that that's not what they wanted to do with this show and uh, basically, I started watching in season three and didn't go back and watch seasons one and two mm-hmm. until like, I don't know, a year or two later. Um, I've seen the whole series. Uh, Most people say start at season two. Yeah, but that is accurate. And actually, like it, the show doesn't really like show exactly like what it is for the majority of its run until the end of season two, when the characters Ben Wyatt and Chris Traeger are introduced. And Chris is played by Rob Lowe, who, of course, was on the West Wing for many years. So they're, they're, there is like some overlap between the characters and like 
the cast and the themes between the shows. I, I mean, I, I don't know if escapism is the best term. I think that like some people watch these shows for nostalgia of a different day. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I mean, that, that, a, different, a different day. Like, I mean, the, the last the last season of The West Wing, and I would you agree with this, uh, Josh and Danny? It's basically a very idealized run between an Obama-like figure and what people would wish John McCain was. Oh, that's, that's, that's exactly how I would describe it, yeah. And for those of you who have not seen the last season of The West Wing, um, it seems to me that the the point of that is um well one they they have a moderate republican who appeals to uh you know center democrats and then Jimmy Smith's character Matt Santos who uh has a lot of like more left leaning ideas than perhaps other characters on the show had but the reason like you like him and people want him to run is because he's earnest and he's like a true public servant and so like you, they take out all the bad stuff about the Republican Party, like misogyny, um, because Arnold Vinick is pro-choice, um, and they ignore um, some of the bad things about John McCain, just take the best parts of him. And so it's kind of a commentary on, look, there are decent Republicans and decent Democrats, and sometimes they can come together on issues. And also debate is good. They literally have an entire episode that was filmed live of the two presidential candidates just debating with each other. Mm-hmm. Which is an episode I hate and Josh likes. You hate it? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to sit there and like watch two people debate policy in a TV show. But why do you like it, Josh? What the, the debate episode where they just talk. I just like them talking about policy. Like that's that's a welcome change for once. <laughs> so you don't think the West Wing usually talks about policy? Well, I mean, like just debates, period. Like the format, the whole the whole format of that episode is that the candidates are actually having serious debates about policy. They, they don't, they get rid of like the two minute rule or something um, and, and literally debate each other unscripted, which is not something you see in standard political debates. No, no, not unscripted. Right. Cause it's a TV show. Right. right sure. Certainly. But like in, within the, <laughs> within the world of the show. And this is, this is a theme throughout like the um, six season of the West wing as well. Um, that debate is important because uh, when the democratic primary is going on, Jimmy Smith's character like just advocates for seven candidates to just be able to do a free for all and cross examine each other. Um, and I, I think a lot of the West Wing um, and those of you that even if you've only seen one episode, I think you can see this. A lot of the West Wing simply is just discussing policy issues in rapid fire dialogue, even if there's no sort of side taken. Mm-hmm. Danny, what about you? Yeah. Having been on Danny's show and listening to Danny's show. Oh, by the way, listen to Danny's show <laughs> at the sectarian review.com. Uh, right? Sectarian review podcast.com is the website, but it's podcast. on iTunes and all place. Yeah. yeah, we're, yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. So I'm curious, where do you take the idea of escapism as far as, I mean, it's sort of a weird escapism, right? Cause it's not, you know, we're not watching superheroes. We're watching more of the same thing that we're complaining about. But sort of not though. It's like, but it, it's it, superheroes is a better analogy in many ways. Cause I think this is pure fantasy um, in a lot of ways, because <laughs> you think about the, the Vinick, was that his name? Was that uh, Alan Alda's character's name in, uh, in that season of the West wing, the Republican? Yes. One wonders how he would have ever came come out of a Republican primary. Uh, there's there's no way that care that that person is comes out of the primary process in the Republican Party. And so there's a there's like a like a fantasy about what a the Republican Party is, um, but b about what 
the American public wants. And so I think that we have this idea that America is founded on these enlightenment principles and through, you know, strong rhetoric and, and, and clear ideas and articulation of policy ideas, you're going to convince people to adopt certain positions. And this show like totally ignores the fact that most of our politics are driven by emotion, right? It, it, it ignores the fact that cable news exists, for example, which does not operate on the, in the realm of logos, but in the realm of pathos, right? It's a, it's entirely, mm-hmm. um, a cl- clickbait driven medium to get you uh, <laughs> uh, just continually watching to boost advertising dollars. And so logic doesn't work in that, in that realm. And so I think th- that sort of liberal Democrat liberals, let me say centrist liberals, you know um, they would like to believe that the world works this way. And so these are their superheroes that, um, that can fly. I would put a caveat there. I don't think this is a uniquely liberal problem. I think that, and we can get into this in a little bit, but I think that it is an aspect of the Americana myth that we all think that every Republican senator, every Democrat senator will tell you what's great about America is that we listen to the debates and we work through our issues through discourse. And, and, and we don't rarely, if ever, do we do that. It's not even an invention of the Trump era. The Trump era has a very sp- particular spin to it. But Congress has always been about, you know, just sort of yelling at each other and trying to, you know, sort of appeal to emotion. I love so. watching the British parliament because they literally scream at each other across the hall. You know, I think that's a more honest way to do politics, frankly, than what we do. Um, and, and so, but, but no, I, so the Trump era, I think what it does is bring out this sort of nostalgia or this kind of fantastical mode in people where they, they sort of have these fantasies about what things should be. And so Trump, because he's so terrible, so like abjectly bad, someone like Jeff Flake appears to be reasonable to that sort of centrist liberal, right? Because he's out there saying, we're better than this. Trump shouldn't be speaking like this. And look how like he's demeaning the presidency. And okay, I'll vote with him nine times out of 10. Um, but he really should be nicer mm-hmm. about things, right? And so that passes as heroism for the same people that have this nostalgia, I think, for this kind of fantasy world of the West Wing. Now, I think that Parks and Rec is slightly different given that it's um, more focused at the local level, where I think a little bit of idealism is probably more warranted, I suppose. Um, but uh, uh, so I, I have a lot of affection for um, Parks and Rec. I think that's a, that's a terrific show. Um, and, and in fact, I was just um, speaking with my colleague, Jess Costanzo, who um, Mav knows, and she was saying she had never seen Parks and Rec. And so she started watching it and started with season one. I'm like, uh, that doesn't. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, just know that it's an entirely <laughs> different show very quickly. So just um, put up with the first season if you want to start there. But and she had a hard time getting through it, not because of the, the structure of it or the, the comedy of it, but because it felt too Obama era. Uh, and so for her, it was almost like painful to go back into this like idealistic um, sort of uh, view of politics. Hmm. And so she wasn't drawn to it because it was an escapism. It was actually a, a more painful reminder of what might have been. And sort of, um, so that was interesting. And I don't, I don't want to belabor my point, but yeah, I, I think that the, um, that the the world that the West Wing creates is a very fantastical one that is analogous to superheroes, um, which are kind of taking all of our heroic tendencies and reduce and, and exaggerating them uh, into these like uh, heroic figures. And uh, and I think that that's kind of what the West Wing does. I so like to go back to a point I, I hear a couple of people saying is that part of like the appeal of the West Wing and at least like 
part of what the show tries to do is just tries to make all political characters engage in what uh, we might call civil discourse. And is civil discourse something we should always aspire to? I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just throwing the question out. Like, is is civil discourse possible or the best kind of case scenario for like what we're dealing with now? Should we return to Bartlett for America? I think um, for me, and this goes into Danny made the comparison of superheroes to, you know, being very similar. I think nostalgia, we go back to our nostalgia show as well. We're not often nostalgic for real things. We are nostalgic for the way things never were. Yeah. And I, I think to say that, for instance, that, well, yeah, this reminds me of too much of what the Obama era was. And maybe that's a good thing for some people. Maybe it's just a painful, poignant thing for some people. But it's also not really true. You know, Obama wasn't perfect. I liked him better than the current guy. <laughs> but but but, you know, it's not like we were in this utopia that we just lost. We had issues there. Some of some of which were of his making. A lot of them weren't. Right. But like but we had this kind of discourse, not as blatantly in that era as well. We had that kind of those kind of fights between the left and the right. We had um, things that didn't work out right. We had, you know. We didn't have as many scandals, but, you know, sometimes he wore brown pants. Well, um, we had immigration <laughs> raids. Yeah, right, right. It wasn't perfect, but it is a reminder of, you know, the civility that we see and we attribute to that from the television show. Congress wasn't really working that way. And I don't know that people really want it to because it's the same reason that we do watch Fox News and and MSNBC, like cable news that Danny was talking about. No one is really, you know, everyone complains that, oh, the news is too biased. But the news, the biased news does better than the unbiased news. I mean, you could just look at, you know. Reuter wire reports if you really want it to no one does because people actually do want the pathos driven this agrees with me it validates my it validates my my feelings kind of thing and i think one reason you look back at shows like west wing or parks and rec is because the current administration maybe is not doing that so it just sort of feels good to have that jolt of this feels comfortable and warm and fuzzy I mean, Josh, you've actually like worked in government for a bit. What sort of like how how do these shows stack up with what you actually experience as like a intern bureaucrat? Intern so, bureaucrat. <laughs> I just love that term. Bureaucrat in training. Um, one of the things I love about these shows is that you you kind of see how the sausage gets made. You you we have this idea like on the street of like the government off doing these things. And then you watch the shows and you realize it's people in a room having actual discussions behind closed doors, trying to articulate policy positions and, and a long-term strategy. And that actually is what happens in real life. You have a behind the, the facade of, of like the president or the Congress, you have the whole administrative state trying to enact these policy decisions and in like concrete terms through regulations. And I enjoy these shows because you get to see somehow some of that plays out. And in my own experience, I, so I've done a little bit of in workers' compensation and, and administrative law. And yeah, the national, the national tone right now is, is just, as Hannah has pointed out, there's like a lack of civil discourse, but the, the administrative agencies are still trying to do their job, still trying to create regulations. 
And I think that's kind of where the where some of the civil discourse is now happening. It's it's behind closed doors in these regulatory agencies uh, at the national and state level, trying to have grown up conversations while the politicians are on in front of the TV cameras saying ridiculous things. That actually reminds me um, a couple of years ago in 2017 in Current Affairs, the superhero named Luke Savage wrote an article about this. Um, uh, and, and he actually describes the kind of what you're talking about is this is a what what the Sorkin verse does with uh, this kind of policy talk is make it exciting and sexy and, uh, and and sort of like thrilling. But what it actually looks like is much more sort of mundane and behind closed doors and very technocratic. Right. And so he, he, he has a phrase in here far from the Kafkaesque banality, which so often characterizes the real life equivalent. The mundane business of technocratic governance is made to look exciting, intellectually stimulating and above all honorable. Right. And so. Um, that's um, what you were talking about, Josh, there reminded me of of that kind of phrase and the way that Sorkin tries to make that kind of mundane stuff look heroic. Right. And uh, in its own way, it is. And I think this is why Parks and Rec succeeds in ways, for me, at least, that um, the West Wing doesn't is because I feel like it is a little bit more heroic on the local level. I feel like those those little policy issues are s- because you're dealing with smaller spaces and smaller populations and smaller budgets, smaller staffs. Yeah, smaller <laughs> staffs. It's it's easier to actually not feel like it's just pointless bureaucracy. Um, although I have worked for um, cities, and that's not true. <laughs> In practice. Yeah. Yes. yeah, I think even there, it's a little bit of a myth. I think what makes these shows work, I, what makes us sort of yearn for the you know for the simpler nostalgic time that didn't exist is because it it just it looks so much more fun and and happy it's exciting if you're talking about something like west wing or it's just joyous if you're talking about something like parks and rec because what sorkin did and you know josh might be able to speak to this is he he used the la law um law and order he you know the lawyer show formula he figured out how to make something that is mundane and awful because it's a job into television by just sort of only showing you the 1% good parts and then playing that up as though it's the hundred percent of the time, you know, like, like trial law is 18 months of really monotonous paperwork followed by, you know, some speeches by people who are not professional actors in a courtroom. Well, let's just skip all that and just have really beautiful people in a courtroom, you know, know, make these uh, make these rigorous speeches where people break down on witness stands every single week. And that makes law shows like, you know, Law and Order way more exciting than if it was just, well, let's see if we look through all of his bank records. That's going to take us three weeks. You know, know, that that would be real lawyering. Right. 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 (laughs) And I related to that, like the show with the like the West Wing. One of one of the tricks Sorkin uses is it's a, a topic of the week. Like he has one episode devoted to gun violence, one episode devoted to uh, like education policy, and they they have this little substantive debate for a few minutes as part of like the a storyline of the episode. They they debate the policy positions, and then they never actually make a decision. They just move on, and the next episode it's a different topic, and they never come back to whatever the debate was in that first episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can you can get the highlights. It makes it sexy without ever having to show the, the hard part of reaching a decision and and then implementing the decision. Well, it doesn't even have to take a side because right. the the point of the show is to like it, 
I guess, try and do like a marketplace of ideas. And, you know, a lot of uh, people who work in the news uh, think of the marketplace of ideas as just like their guiding force. You just put what people say out into the world, sometimes with no con, most of the time with no context. Like there's always been debate since even before Trump, even though it's reached a more critical point about whether or not to fact check politicians during debates or fact check them live because politicians then won't want to talk to you. But then how, what is your responsibility as a journalist to, you know, do that? And if you're putting misinformation out in the world, you know, like, where is your role in that? Um, What is your ethical responsibility? Uh, So that's kind of like a question that I think might come into play in these shows on occasion with the storyline, but also like, even when we, you know, when we, um, three of us, uh, not Josh, teach um like you know how much contextualizing do we have to do when we teach something to like help students understand why on earth we're teaching a thing that kind of looks like garbage Mm -hmm. it's irresponsible to teach jane Eyre without saying okay like here's gender inequality here are the problems with race etc etc here's the context of the british empire here's what critics have said here are the critiques of the critics. We, we, we wouldn't just say, oh, isn't Jane Eyre like a great book? And yes, I know I pick on Jane Eyre on the show a lot, but it deserves it. So like, wh- why don't we hold the news and our politicians to this uh, same standard? I wonder, and this, this becomes a weird thing. The West Wing is that fiction though, right? Whereas we as, as teachers, our job in the classroom is first and foremost to teach the student to do the kind of critical thinking that you're talking about. You're telling them, look, here's the context of Jane Eyre because you're hoping that in their real lives after, you know, they graduate in May, the next time they read Jane Eyre or anything else, they try to sit down and use the kind of critical thinking that you're trying to impart on them. You, you know, they, they say, Oh, this isn't just a delightful romance. Let me think about the context in which this was written. And that also includes when they're watching politics, whereas the politician's job in a sense is to convince the news's job, at least theoretically in the minds of most of the journalists is just to sort of report. They probably think of themselves more as the writer than the teacher. So I don't know that they're right, but I wonder if they're specifically trying to not teach you to critically analyze. I mean, certainly cer- certain networks absolutely would prefer that you don't critically analyze. But um, but but even in general, I don't know that they're I don't know that it's a liberal or conservative thing. Well, no, you're right. But also, like, as someone who actually attended some form of journalist school, mm-hmm. um, like there, there's also the idea that you don't just take things at the surface level and you show all sides. And like, that doesn't just mean quoting from Trump right. and then quoting from someone on the left. That means also like actually doing the research yourself. And of course I need to like footnote this and say, well, it's really hard for a lot of journalists to do any kind of investigative research because of the lack of time, money and the constant cuts going on. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't know, 90% of journalism in one way or another is our, is basically uh, biased, um, uh, not just because of places like Fox News, where it's delivered by talking heads and it's not really news, but... Also, it's also like, not the, they're also not the, even, even on non Fox news, most of the people that we think of as not, not all, but most of the people that we think of as our most famous journalists in, in 2019 are talking heads. They're not the real reporters. The people who get famous for being on television are not 
you know, they're summarizing other people's you know <laughs> reporting. Usually, and this, yeah, and this is why ProPublica and places like that are so important because they fund like real investigative research journalism. That's very important because we we need someone to hold politicians and other people in power accountable, which I now realize we've just really diverted from the topic <laughs> at hand, but um, it's, it's all related. Um, Have we? I was actually hoping to to use this to segue because I because for me, you know, we talked a lot about West Wing, but my favorite political show, I said at the very beginning, has been Newsroom. And one of the central uh, conceits of that show, I, did anybody else ever actually watch it? I watched it for a bit and I just couldn't. It, it, it was everything Aaron Sorkin that I yeah. hate. Plus, I can't watch journalism shows. Okay. I've, never, I've only seen the viral videos that make it on social media. Yeah. Okay. And Josh? I've only seen a couple of episodes. Okay. So I won't spend too much time on it, but the conceit of the show was, you know, it was happening in the past. Uh, I believe it started four or five years before it actually um, aired. And the idea was it was every, every, every episode was a week in this newsroom from a, a fictional cable news network. And they would take some actual event in American history or politics. So you might have an election night. You might have um, one episode's the day that Gabby Gifford got, uh, got shot. One episode is the day of the Boston marathon bombing. Um, there's a lot of episodes that have to do with political debates or things like that. And the idea is he has the real framework of the actual news cycle to end. So they do an election episode. You know that at the end of that episode, Obama will win the presidency because that what that's what happened. So the, what the context of the show is, what are the politics of when do you the various people in it's not a Fox and it's not an MSNBC. They are, they are a network where there are liberal people working there and conservative people working there. And the question is how much of our bias do we let in? What is our responsibility to inform? What is our responsibility to fact check? And it's, and it's a lot of trying to work these details out and sort of, I think Josh, you said about, you know, the, how the sausage is made show. This tries to do the, how the sausage is made. Sure. For me, I enjoyed that show because it wasn't so much about the accuracy of it. It was about the meta conversation over, you know, what is the responsibility of journalism? What is the responsibility of storytelling, which it ultimately was to represent all sides versus to give an opinion versus when do you, when, you know, what information is relevant and what information is not relevant? How many facts do you need? What happens when you get something wrong? I enjoyed those sort of meta conversations that Sorkin problems that he may have. And I, I mean, I, I think he's a clever writer. I think he's not a perfect writer. And which again, is what we do for a living where we're, where we critique these things. But I, I enjoyed him trying to make those questions apparent in the same way that these other shows do, but with the media surrounding politics rather than the politics surrounding them, politics. So both objects there, the politicians or the journalists, the way Sorkin frames that is, is this, there are like, I mean, it's a very kind of liberal position that it's all based on whether you're a sort of morally good actor or not as an individual. Right. And so there are, you know, good, um, like Vinnick is a good Republican and, uh, and the, 
the Al Bundy guy. Uh, I forget his character's name in that last season. Uh, he's a bad Republican, right? And so um, you have all these uh, uh, these kind of archetypes of like good or bo- bad players, and what it ignores is the system, right? Um, that that produces the choices that good or bad players can make, right? And so this is where I think liberalism generally fails uh, when it fails, is that it, it focuses less on the system than it should. And uh, and I think when you talk about the news, for example, whether a particular network or a particular journalist within a particular network is a good or bad actor is less relevant to the fact that the whole thing is funded on ratings. Um, and it's sort of a profit-driven um, <laughs> uh, thing. And so... The, that profit feeds mm-hmm. all of these uh, networks. And you look at MSNBC, I recently saw a study where they actually have less non-opinion reporting than Fox does. Um, and so, Yes, they do. But no one who yeah. criticizes Fox likes to say that. But yes, MSNBC as a network, as opposed to the NBC News division, which runs it, which is part of a greater conglomerate, the actual network MSNBC is currently yeah. more opinion and, and shows that than boxes so that they can keep up in the marketplace right and so we have a systemic thing that leads to the kind of ethically squishy mm-hmm. uh moral choices that individual players are making um and i think that the sorkin model thinks we just got to find the best and the brightest and put them in charge of things and things will work out right right and so um the things themselves are what's flawed mm-hmm. and i think that that's that's where sorkin kind of falls short for me it's inspiring as it is i mean i, I get that it's inspiring and I, and I get the the idealism behind it but there's a blind spot there that i, I think that applies to both his vision of politics and to journalism well, let's actually talk about uh, this best and brightest that he comes up with, because are these characters really aspirational? Um, like Jed Bartlett lies about having MS whenever he first runs for president and comes out as having MS during his first term of presidency because he wants to run for reelection. We criticize Trump for like having a phony doctor's report and also for all the other lies he's told about his personal life and, you know, other politicians. Uh, Matt Santos, uh, there's an episode where he talks to Vinick about the potential of him having a love child. He claims, like Santos claims it's his brother's, but it's never resolved, which is, you know, a big sex scandal that lots of presidents and other politicians have gotten in trouble for. We also have poorly written women on these shows when it comes to their personal lives. Like they're, they're competent at their jobs, but they fall into the stereotype of like hyper competent woman who like can't get her love life together. <laughs> um, and you know, like as much as I loved um, Donna um, on the West wing, uh, getting like a storyline about wanting to advance her career throughout like the last three-ish seasons um, of the West Wing. Her relationship to Josh is the thing that most defines her on the show. Plus the the fact that the West Wing is a majorly white cast, um, which they were criticized for before like the first season was even over. That's why they ended up casting Dulé Hill in the first place. And uh, like also like uh, Sean King, who is a social justice reporter who has not received his own critiques for misogyny. And uh, there's some questions about his financials going around right now, but he's done reports on even like in the present day, like 2016 forward, Democrats are not very good at hiring black voters or just, you know, more diverse people to work on their staffs after they're elected, even though that's the electorate that supports them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, are these characters actually people we should look up to or because like they've been coded as public servants who are just doing their best um, and they can say dialogue really prettily? 
Is that like what we're like looking in up to? It's the Jeff like, Flake problem, right? You know? Someone who can do things smoothly and with panache, rhetorical, you know, panache, um, still actually um, perpetuating the problems of the system, right? Um, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Hannah. Do you think anything different, Josh? No, I think that's a valid critique. <laughs> so I did a show once on the the whole fearless girl thing, and I know that that's one of my more controversial show. My wife actually wrote a long retort that I had to publish on the blog because she was mad at me for that show. But um, <laughs> my argument, I was glad to publish it, by the way. Um, my wife is really brilliant. But um, my, uh, uh, my point with that, the celebratory nature of the fearless girl statue in Wall Street was that, okay, so basically you're setting up, it's this corporate feminism where it's the structure of inequality is fine as long as we have women on the board and CEOs, right? And so it's kind of related to this liberal blind spot about structural issues. Right. Like, I, I think that the West Wing in general just has uh, what we might call neoliberal or centrist yeah. left, not even left, but just centrist liberal politics, whenever it decides to take a side. Um, we should define. So really quick, and I'm, I'm actually liking this a lot, but we're getting weirdly academic in a way that we usually don't when we're just making Riverdale jokes and stuff. So um, but Danny's show does this more often. So I want to just for our audience sort of you know put some stakes in the ground as to leftism, lift liberalism, neoliberalism, radical leftism. And conservatism, oh, neoconservatism, just any terms that we're going to use. I want to make sure that we actually, because I'm sure some people are like, oh, like for our audience in a, in a, in a more popular sense, people tend to talk about the left and the liberals as though they're the same thing. Academically, we don't so much. We talk about subcultures that are more specific. So I want to make sure we're clear on that. I also want to just, uh, mess that entirely up and say, well, I want to agree with you, but also, um, even though we can give basic definitions of things like neoliberalism, uh, there's totally. terms that are so mushy. Yes. Totally in flux at all times. <laughs> that, yes. So, um, if you see neoliberalism being used slightly differently, um, than the general definition, which is just, uh, liberal laissez-faire, um, free market ish type things, that's, Probably because someone is using it as their own special definition. Mm -hmm. Whenever I, I'm thinking about the left, I'm thinking kind of progressives, um, even like democratic socialists, uh, moderate liberal, uh, would be, you know, Hillary Clinton-ish, um, kind of politics, uh, far right. I, I, the Trumps. See, I don't think, and see, and I, and I would say not for that one. See that, that, and that's the and that's problem, where, right? And that's where it becomes weird. But, but, but yeah, like for, so I, I would very much not put the Trumps at far right. I would put them at actually weirdly moderate right. They're just crazy. So it's hard to say, right? Like well, <laughs> the reason why I say far right is, yeah. and this is where the definition gets mushy. Uh, far right is just outwardly just racist. Um, and Trump is just outwardly racist. Yes. Well, okay. So yeah, it depends on whether you're talking about politically or socially as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so we basically just messed everything up. Right. Um, <laughs> also would put Trump sort of as a kind of, frankly, pretty, I mean, mainstream Republican, given that the Republicans support most of what he said, but he has an appeal yeah, politically. to the far right. <laughs> that's sort of, he's there. He's the far right into mainstream Republican party. I think he's a bridge at least, um, if not totally yes. associated, he's definitely um, far right curious, let's say. Yeah. Policy wise, he's not that weird. He's crazy. 
he's racist, he's sexist, he's, you know, like he, as far as the way he actually behaves is absolutely deplorable. Policy wise, I don't agree with 99.999% of the stuff he says, but it's still, but it's not that far. That's why people put up with him, right? Like he, you know, oh, well, at least he's doing what McConnell wants him to do. Just wishes he'd shut up, you know? So I, so I understand that. Yeah. To be be fair, like a lot of, I guess, Republican ideals are usually uh, couched in civil discourse right. or like they, they find a way to like be racist through dog whistles instead of outwardly just saying something horrid, which um, he doesn't do. He just said, no, I'll just say it. <laughs> he takes the genteel mask off of the, the extreme views of mainstream Republicans. Right. Yeah. But I guess I, I didn't want to go too far away from is just because we were distinguishing between neoliberal and leftist and liberal without defining it. So I want to get back right. to that point that you were making. Right. Uh, so just basically like the West Wing, I would even say Parks and Recreation really just hold and I, Madam Secretary too, maybe just hold like kind of centrist liberal politics and they, they really aren't interested in any sort of uh, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez type leftist politics. Um, they're still very much. Yeah. Newsroom sure. kind of was because it's, but it's, but there that's because character wise they can look at like they're not actually interested in the on the floor debate they were looking at you know there there was there's uh, several episodes where they go very deep into occupy wall street type stuff because they're reporting it's a different you know it's a different aspect and i i don't think but yeah parks and rec definitely doesn't you don't have that on house of cards and and house of cards is also different like veep because at the at their heart they're cynical tv shows um right. where they're they're very much like you can really understand i think house of cards in the age of trump because it's like okay of course this is how things do get done people power grab sometimes so blatantly you can just read the news and be like oh yeah he colluded but you know there if you if you're looking uh to these shows to tell you how to like actually make policy i'm not sure that that is a great idea which, to be fair, I don't know if you should get your policy from TV shows. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I mean, how, how does Madam Secretary handle foreign policy? It's very, it's very aspirational. <laughs> <laughs> like the show has interesting politics. It's very, it's very feminist. It's all about like this woman like living in a man's world and 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 achieving things despite all the problems against her. And she, at the end of the day, she almost always like like overcomes whatever the obstacle in front of her is. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it. it I enjoy the show, but I don't think it's particularly realistic. Is it is it radically feminist, or does it is it just kind of the <laughs> I corporate? I wouldn't say that. Okay, is it, it, it's just kind of like the there is a woman who succeeds. So I would say it is. So the criticism that you were making of West Wing, where it's sort of for portrayal of women, is successful means that you blow up your personal life, right? Like the that is that that that's the formula. And in fact, it's not even just West Wing. I'm mean, Sorkin's particularly known for it but there but there are a lot of it's the mary tyler moore problem right like the the most important thing that we know about women who opt for the non-traditional with scare quotes around it the non-normative um patriarchal i'm going to be a homemaker is you go and you live in the man's world and it destroys your ability to like have a normal family life that's how we've done television madam secretary is in many many ways no it doesn't have to be this way so she is a successful politician you know she has risen to the top and then she goes home and she has a 
great husband, a pretty great daughter. You know, they all love each other. They have, you know, regular family problems, but they come together and, and sort of it, it, it's very much a everybody supports everybody. And we can you know, we can have a I don't, I don't want to say that they're the Brady's or the Nelson's or anything like that, but they have they have a pretty strong family life, which is pretty normative, despite the fact that she is arguably the, you know, third or fourth most powerful person on the planet by virtue of being secretary of state for the United States of America. Can I, can I step in and defend Mary Tyler Moore real quickly? Cause I, I adore that show. That's one of my, it's probably my favorite show of all time. Um, <laughs> I actually wonder, I mean, I, I, that critique of that show is, is not wrong, but I actually wonder if part of the issue with that particular show was that she was so beloved that they could never write somebody who was worthy of her um as to be a mate right and so i think that it was almost a uh the the a failure in the writers uh, imaginations to be able to come up with someone that america would accept for our mary right and so that's <laughs> sort of my yeah i mean mary. she's a, yeah it was like there's a difference i think between like being like in some ways like it seems that like there are shows where a woman doesn't necessarily want to have a relationship Mm-hmm. And then there's the West Wing where it's very obvious they totally want to have a relationship, but they're not going to write a healthy relationship because yeah. of the drama of the viewers or they can't come up with a storyline because it's very hard. And I'm being kind of mean to Aaron Sorkin, but whatever, he can handle it. Um, it's very hard for him to, it seems, to imagine a happy woman. I think he is much better at writing, well, he thinks he's better at writing women in pain and misery, um, which he's not the only one, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like, 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 uh, Leslie Nope and Ben Wyatt and actually, uh, most of the characters of parks and recreation are paired off in happy marriages and also successful by the end of the show, which mm-hmm. then you could critique and say, well, even characters like Donna, who seem to be kind of like the character who was more into adventure than actually having a marriage, like ended up in this like heteronormative relationship. So, why, why can't there be like different types of relationships or different types of like living your life? Um, mm. So you can just, you know, no one is ever happy. Cause I think that is a extremely fair criticism of Sorkin. I will give him credit that um, the same thing, basically the parks and rec thing basically happens by the end of newsroom Two. newsrooms, only three seasons. And it, they certainly are for the most part, people are, normatively paired off by the end and even and even though there is a lot of there are there's a lot of dysfunction to the relationships but on that particular show it it doesn't so much come across as a fault of the woman so much as this is a soap opera so we need to have relationship drama that is you know sort of just goes around and then the problems tend to work themselves out eventually so i do think he worked on it i don't i i am certainly not going to defend the characters, the female characters on newsroom as being the most feminist, best representations of women. They're not. There's a lot of flightiness to them. There's a lot of bitchiness to them. There's a lot of stereotype to them in order to make them characters on that show. So I don't mean to defend it at all as though he solved this problem. He did not. But I but he does appear to be aware of it and working on it in some way. The the liberalism thing, though, because I I did want to I didn't want to lose that where you were going with that before, which was the idea of when, when we watch these shows, we, you know, we, we don't have, we don't have political shows that focus around what is democratic socialism, which I don't want to have that entire conversation because 
I also have issues with that. But the thing we were talking about where we're distinguishing between left and right and liberal and conservative and Republican and Democrat and neoliberal. And, you know, like there's so much of those things that in real life, we tend to sort of simplistically mark things down to just sort of two sides. There's the, the us and the them, the, the left and the right. And we use them in a, in a simplistic way with very broad strokes brushes over those weird differences. And I, and I think that, I, I mean, you said that most of these shows sort of paint, you know, the left cause they, cause to be fair, they are mostly about the left. You don't have that many political shows, even West wing, which featured Republicans, was a pretty liberal friendly show you know well, yeah like because a lot of i mean it, it's hard to like hold positions on television that are untenable unless you're the villain of the show which a couple of republicans are absolutely like you know anti-abortion uh racist ex- homophobic etc like it, it's hard to like portray anyone sympathetically who ca- takes issue with people who are in your audience watching. See, and that's Um, what I was getting at. I don't know that it is. I think that these shows build an audience of people like us because they go out of their way to speak to people like us. There is a big, huge middle America out there, which doesn't have its own West Wing. Yeah. I'm fine with that. Yeah. um, Oh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to produce one, but, but I just, my my point being, it, it sort of says something when these shows sort of, you know, they they sort of enforce the here's what liberalism looks like and liberalism for the most part on television looks like Hillary Clinton as a template for the Democratic Party. Here's what conservatism looks like. And there's two versions. There's the John McClain reasonable Republican and then there's the evil guy. You know, th- those are the two. Ver- so there are those are basically the three politicians that exist across the shows even to the extent that, you know, Frank Underwood, who's a Democrat on the show, is a bad guy, but only because of attitude, you know, policy wise, you kind of go, OK, I get it. You know, so there's so there's there's weird things like that uh, on Veep, you know, like all the shows, there's a very simplistic version of politics. And I think you're right to say that we're not really dealing with all of the of the spectrum or even realistically with the part of the spectrum we are dealing with. Well, like, and also the, I mean, it, it's, these, these are clearly shows that kind of just build on the history of the political system as we know it. And by that, I mean, you know, it, they, West Wing couldn't imagine a woman running for president, really. They couldn't imagine a woman's VP um, in the seventh season because they have an entire conversation where um, Amy, um, who is basically kind of like that feminist voice of the West Wing who like tries to propose radical feminist policies in the show's view says you should pick um, a woman for Florida for VP. And Matt Santo says, no, that would be the symbolic choice. I need to go with the white man from Pennsylvania. And, you know, whenever you can uh, pick a show that's aspirational, you could do things that you couldn't necessarily do in the real world or that actually you can do in the real world because Hillary Clinton has gotten very close and women have run on the ticket as president and vice president uh, now. But... Uh, I guess what I mean, there there actually was a show, a show, I think, about a woman as president and it went off the air really quickly um, because it didn't find an audience. Yeah. Um, what I'm what I'm getting at is like it seems that like 
the the kind of politics these shows do uh, when it comes to like social politics is that they're interested in not in not talking about intersectional problems, whether it be class or race, like they or if they do, they kind of brush them aside. Uh, there's an episode of The West Wing where uh, Native Americans show up in the lobby of the White House, and CJ learns about the problems that they faced, but they they don't actually do anything to really address the problems of like the clash between uh, the sovereign nations and the United States. Am I, do you think that that's correct, Josh? I do. I do. <laughs> it, it's just, I, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know exactly how they would go about doing this. I get this, I guess this might be a problem because, you know, Josh, you've even said to me that uh, human rights are mushy in the legal sense and we're making policy. No, that, that's true. And what, did, what exactly do you mean by that? So I'm, I'm taking an international law of human rights course this semester. And so we're reading all these, these treaties and they're very, they have all this, these aspirations, this aspirational language, just things like, and all people have a right to clean drinking water in sentence. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean there's no line drawing? Like, does that mean everyone gets six gallons a day? Is there some sort of minimum amount of water? Is the, what's the government's requirement? Um, and different countries have done different things to, to implement these policies. Like, I think it's also hard to kind of go back to what Danny said, like at the very beginning of the show, a lot of our principles are founded on enlightenment ideals and embedded in enlightenment ideals are, you know, like assumptions about men and property and race uh, and colonialism that we as a country have had a hard time breaking away from and other yeah, countries I, as well. I agree with that. And, um, uh, there's a book that I actually just got this week, um, but I know, I've sort of know about it by Mark Fisher um, called Capitalist Realism. It's a really short book. But I mean, the basic argument of this book is um, that capitalism just sort of works in such a way that we can't imagine another way of <laughs> of, of doing life, of, of organizing society. Uh, and I think that West Wing mm-hmm. Is so incremental in its uh, in its vision. It's you know what I'm saying, and so it's all about the heroism of rhetorically convincing people to make very incremental changes within the system that exists, right? And there's no sort of imagination of anything outside of that system. Um, and I think that um, Fisher's book, uh, Fisher's work in general, sort of gets at that. Yeah, I, I, and actually, uh, I mean, I, I think we could point out that President Bartlett is a Nobel Prize winning economist. <laughs> Um, so it's like already kind of embedded in the DNA of the show. Um, and I, I've been thinking about as we've had this conversation, also even like, uh, mentions of Obama, Jody Dean's book, Democracy and Other Neoliberal Fantasies, uh, which actually makes a pretty clear argument for people who aren't super into political jargon, which, uh, it was, it was written after Obama was elected. It was basically like Obama was elected. We expected everything to change. Why didn't things change? And um, I think people are now probably more familiar with this since Bernie Sanders ran and now Elizabeth Warren is running and um, other people are critiquing Citizens United. But it's basically making the case that the Democrats and the Republicans in general are embedded in the capitalist system and are in bed with Wall Street. And so part of the reason why things don't change is because their policies just reinforce mm-hmm. the systems and the politicians, because of their donors or what have you, or their values, are working for the super wealthy and not for the everyday working and, and, class or um, middle class person. Right. The entire purpose of capitalism is to is to protect itself. And a two party system 
for and this, is, this becomes a weird a weirder side topic that I want to go too far down but both parties are big tent parties the republicans have many 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 divisions inside of them the democrats have many 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 divisions inside of them because of the myth that that the system being binary can only work that way but functionally we have probably about eight or nine relevant political forces in this country that are just sort of forced to pick sides against each other in order to sort of maintain, you know, that capitalist vision. Right. Like I like because I don't want Republicans running anything in Mississippi. Uh, it seems that the only lieutenant uh, gubernatorial candidate I can maybe vote for is actually anti-choice. Mm -hmm. And I'm furious, <laughs> but I also want teachers to get pay raises so if it's the choice between that guy and a Republican, I'm probably going to vote for that guy. Right. But then the question becomes, oh, but by compromising your principles, are you in fact perpetuating the system? And I think one right. of the reasons that we like shows like these are that they sort of escape all that. You can have a character who is an altruistic perfect world. I believe in this principle and I'm going to stand on it. I'm going to give my Jimmy Smith speech. I'm going to give my um, my Jimmy <laughs> Smith speech. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Mr. What, Smith, uh, Jimmy Smith, um, Jimmy um, Stewart. Stewart. And actually, yeah, actually now Smith that you say Washington. that, yeah. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is probably more accurate and aspirational than any of these shows because it bothers to critique the system and shows how mm -hmm. hard it is. And he doesn't actually succeed by the end. He just exposes the system. And that's the greatest vision Frank Capra can show you. And Capra got more cynical by the end uh, <laughs> because It's a Wonderful Life doesn't even have the system exposed. Mr. Potter is not revealed to be a villain. It's just the community coming together and trying to carve out mm -hmm. a tiny little space in which they can exist in this miserable world. But still, in both It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, both of them are still a, yeah, but like if you just believe hard enough, you can be a good person that, that stands for change. And You can be a good person but you and you can try and change, but it doesn't necessarily always change. But that's like the thing that Capra understands that I think a lot of these shows... That Sorkin doesn't? That... Don't yeah, like I mean, like honestly, I love I I love uh, Parks and Rec, but I think The Good Place, which is also by Michael Shore, who created Parks and Rec, is much more nuanced in its like vision of how to be a good person and can we actually affect change? Mm -hmm. Well, but sure, if you're a magical post spiritual dead person, yeah, then you can. Oh, but have, I mean, have you watched the show? Yeah, because, totally. but, but, yeah, because yeah, because you know they, they aren't changing anything. That's the point. Yeah, I know, and it's <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, it. in this note of uh, wondering. You know why we can't imagine another way of being. Um, in the last month or two, Aaron Sorkin himself has come out in harsh criticism of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the other sort of new kind of uh, mm -hmm. activist-driven sort of Democrats that have um, invaded Congress here um, and telling them, oh, you guys just need to calm down and, and be aspirational and work with the system and, and inspire people. Don't be so critical, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Yes. <laughs> you don't have any adults. It's, uh, which... it's insulting, right? Uh, and, yeah. and so, yes, um, being adult what led us to this point, right? <laughs> so, Yeah, well, but so has Sarah Silverman has also said that, and she's more liberal. The, the, the weird thing is when you have a two-party system like this that sort of both parties sort of try to pretend that they're, like I said, they're big tent. They try to pretend that everybody on our in our in our party is really on the same side. But everybody's really an individual. And even those individuals are, you know, encased in smaller little subcultures. And it becomes it becomes weird because when somebody says be adult, what they mean is 
okay, we all need to compromise and do exactly what I want to do. And Aaron Sorkin, I like his writing. I don't think he's perfect. I like some of the shows that he's done. A Few Good Men is one of my favorite movies of all time. You know, he is still a neoliberal. And by be adult, he means, well, we should sort of do this thing that I want. And it's the exact same thing that happens if you go to the progressive left. You have, a, I, I have a lot of people in my personal bubble who get very upset with the Democratic Party because why doesn't everybody just do the reasonable thing and support Bernie Sanders? Because that's the only reasonable thing they can imagine. Like, you know, so it's the same thing is happening as like everybody needs to get together and compromise and do my thing. And that's not really what compromise is. And Sorkin is as guilty of that as anybody. I think personally. Yeah. I mean, just the idea that um, a sign of personal virtue is politeness, I think is, I think that that, if that's the (laughs) ultimate personal virtue, I think that that's just ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, like it's, it's built in, the being polite is built into like a lot of levels of government, right? Like, like being a lawyer, if you work for the government, you have to be polite, don't you? Like it, you have to follow rules and stuff. I recognize the gentlewoman from, <laughs> you know, that thing. You, mean? you can be held in contempt of court if you're not polite. So I would not do well in court, yeah. would I? Uh, maybe. <laughs> and I'm not saying that there, I mean, as someone who teaches rhetoric, I mean, uh, one of the first lessons of rhetoric is the audience awareness and understanding the decorum of the, uh, of the particular situation you're in. There is something to that. I'm not saying that I'm happy that Trump is breaking all of these performance norms. You know, yeah. I, I'm not saying that that's, well, he is the opposite of polite politics isn't he? either. Right. Um, but I, I'm just saying we shouldn't take it off the table. Right. <laughs> as, as <laughs> <laughs> so we've resolved nothing. I don't know. I, I think that we we've resolved that uh, we should not listen to what Aaron Sorkin says in real life. <laughs> but we can listen to it on television. Unfortunately, I guess. Oh, you picked a topic. I, I mean, <laughs> I did, and I still maintain that this is a a, a good topic. It's timely. Uh, I got to talk about Jimmy Stewart for a second. <laughs> I got to mention the good place, the great show on television. Right, Josh? Riverdale. Come on. This week, so at, at time of recording, we are in mourning the loss of Luke Perry. So for this week, R- Riverdale, I, absolutely the best show I, on television. I will say that, that Luke Perry was one of the best parts of Riverdale. And we're very, uh, Josh watched like two episodes. He's the only memorable part. <laughs> uh, and we're very sad. Um, and our thoughts go out to his family and fans. He seemed like a really lovely guy, actually. Yeah. Yeah. He just quick story. Um, It's it's very interesting that background for me doesn't come up on the show much, but I was I was a professional wrestler. And so I've got a lot of friends in the industry. Luke Perry's son is a professional wrestler. So he dies. And one of the one of the photos that I see of him commemorating his life mostly is a picture of him. You can barely see him. He's in the rafters of a of of a you know he's in a balcony in a darkly lit room just applauding his kid in the ring so sort of sort of being being a good father supporting his son and i heard a luke perry story um, this week too i'm from cleveland ohio and um so my my first my sort of representative and now senator uh was sherrod brown and and i, I found out that sherrod brown's father was, actually delivered luke perry um, as <laughs> I did not know that. that was, <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. So Luke Perry affected the entire world. <laughs> uh, well, I want to thank our guests for being here. You know, uh, Danny, thank you. 
for returning once again. This was a blast. <laughs> no, anytime. This was great. Um, it's great to always yeah. talk to you guys. One last time. time, where can people find you if they want to you know, follow more of your ramblings? Well, I'm on Twitter at, what is my Twitter? <laughs> at Danny P. Anderson, I think. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, it's me with a hat on. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> and then, um, uh, you know, www.sectarianreviewpodcast for the show. Um, there's a Twitter page for that uh, or in a, in a uh, Facebook page too. So and I always love it when people subscribe to the show. So. And that is, of course. But, and just send me an email. I like just to talk to people that I don't know. So if you send me an email, I'll, uh, I'll respond. So. <laughs> uh, da- Danny's show is, of course, linked in the show notes. Josh, what about you? Uh, you can usually find me in the UNC Law Library stacks late at night. Uh, ah. I'm not terribly active on social media. If you but. want to listen to Count Haikus, you can text 414. Wait, I, I thought you were going to stop me. Please, please don't. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not his real phone number. Don't try and text 414. <laughs> but Hannah knows where to find me. <laughs> well, thanks for coming and joining us. It's actually fun to, fun thanks, to finally Hannah. meet you. Yeah. You can uh, follow me on Twitter as always at Hallie Rogers. I will probably not be tweeting Josh's cat haikus because he would get angry with me. Josh <laughs> writes cat haikus as an aside. I, I guess you figured that out. My poetry was never meant yeah. for others. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'll be, you'll be appreciated at a later time after your death. So, you know, <laughs> the world will be changed in the future. By no, the cat they're haiku. really good. Can I read one? sure why not okay <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure this is what everyone listens to this podcast for look departing geese auspicious day for napping catching birds in dreams oh so they're reading from the perspective of the cat yes. they're not, they're not haikus amazing. about cats I love it. Oh. see I, 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 I think love you've it. I think you've revolutionized poetry here Hey, there's a whole genre of mysteries uh, revolving around cats called the cozy. And so uh, why not cat haikus? I think you have a, a market. See? I think. There thinking, you go. We're thinking about putting them on mugs and selling them to undergrads. If the lofty thing doesn't work out. I, was, I mean, I've seen worse business plans. So, <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show on Twitter at Vox Popcast. You can follow my blog at www.chrismaverick.com or the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we discuss the topics that we will be discussing next week and we give you an opportunity to be a con- part of the conversation. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And if you subscribe, we'd appreciate it if you'd leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That helps other people find the show, and it just makes me feel good about myself. I'm very lonely. And so I'd I'd appreciate it if you did that. I'm sure Hannah would as well. Not as much as you. Not as much as me. But I would appreciate it, sure. Thank you, Hannah. Um, I would like to once again thank you at home for listening. I'd like to once again thank both of our guests for joining us. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, Building Ever So More Epically and Playing Us Out Right Now. And we will see you next time. Bye. 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 I guess this is just another lost cause, Mr. Payne. All you people don't know about lost causes. Mr. Payne does. He said once they were the only causes worth fighting for.
And he fought for them once. For the only reason any man ever fights for them. Because of just one plain, simple rule. Love thy neighbor. And in this world today, full of hatred, a man who knows that one rule has a great trust. You know that rule, Mr. Payne. And I loved you for it just as my father did. And you know that you fight for the lost causes harder than for any others. Yes, you even die for them. Like a man we both knew, Mr. Payne. You think I'm licked. You all think I'm licked. Well, I'm not licked. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> 